Right now, we're going to talk more about what appears to be a, well, a call that is getting louder and louder. As of yesterday, we saw the UBC Faculty Association join the call for more pandemic measures to be taken in universities when classes return next month. Several groups are calling on a vaccine mandate, saying it should be mandated for all students and staff who are returning to the campuses, as well as mask requirements while indoors. We're seeing several unions and faculty associations making these calls. But at this point, if we're looking at universities in BC, at least it appears that UBC is not going to be bringing in those measures and instead is going to follow along with the prevention guidelines. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Amir Adaran, a professor with the Faculty of Law and the School of Epidemiology, also Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Adaran was nice enough to join us today, even though he is on vacation, not currently at the university. Thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure. Thank you. Wanted to talk to you a bit more about the idea of in-class learning, going back to schools in September. It seems to be kind of piecemeal at this point, whether or not post-secondary schools are going to make mandatory vaccinations or make vaccine mandatory. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Canada is extremely far behind and backwards on science when it comes to vaccination and universities and colleges. Um, In the United States, some 500 universities have now made vaccination mandatory to come back on campus. No vaccine, you're not coming back to campus. Simple as that. That's how it works in the USA. And in Canada, there's only one college and one university requiring this. All the rest aren't. It's it's Seneca College and the University of Ottawa, which just announced its plan today for mandatory vaccination. But nobody else is doing it. And frankly, that is um, a very, very sad thing for Canada. And it's going to make people sick and it's going to kill some of them. Do you think it can be, is, is some of the reasoning then that if schools continue with masking policies or continue with distancing policies, that takes the place or that is what's going to make them safe? You know, I don't want to credit any of that with the word reasoning. There, there just isn't reasoning here. There's really only one way out of this pandemic, we all know, and that's vaccination. If you don't have vaccination, you will get super spreading events where people gather in large numbers, like colleges and universities and schools. This is obvious. No scientist in his or her right mind doubts it. So there really is a problem of no reasoning going on in Canada's schools, colleges, and universities. There's, there's an anti-scientific attitude, unlike in the United States, where those institutions uh, of higher education are requiring vaccination. We in Canada are just blowing it off. It'll be okay. And of course it won't be. In BC, especially uh, as well, I know there's been a lot of talk about healthcare workers and a requirement that healthcare workers, people in hospital settings or long-term care, uh, people seem to be more supportive of that when we're talking about mandatory vaccination in that if it was required, people seem to be okay with that. Do, do you think, is that a disconnect there that on the one hand, we're okay with it, it seems when we're talking about healthcare settings, but there's this pushback even from universities, from places like UBC, when student groups when teacher groups call for mandated vaccine? Look, I think it's simpler than that. 
I think it's at the administrators at UBC. And by the way, I'm an alumnus. I graduated from UBC. I think those administrators are unscientific and unintelligent. I'll put it as bluntly as that. There is no scientific doubt you need vaccination where large people, large numbers of people congregate. There's no doubt. So why is UBC claiming to be a great science university? The following science. It has to do with the inferiority of the administrators and their inability to make a decision founded on science. That's all it is. The administration that you talk about, one of the quotes was, UBC will not be making COVID-19 vaccination mandatory for students, faculty or staff, nor will UBC ask members of the campus community to disclose their vaccination status. Uh, Going on to say that, uh, according to our health ministry in BC, one of the reasons is there's never been a mandatory immunization program for any vaccine. What are your thoughts on that argument being put forward? They're lying. I mean, I'm choosing my word carefully. I'm sorry if it causes offense, but they're lying. Number one, there has been mandatory vaccination, including at UBC. If you're in the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences, there's a list of vaccines you have to take, even to enter the program. So UBC is not telling the truth when they say there has not been mandatory vaccination. In fact, there is on their own campus. Second of all, let's look at the universities that are requiring mandatory vaccination for covid That list includes Berkeley, Caltech, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, MIT, Princeton, Columbia. Are you getting the pattern here? Those are the world's best universities. And UBC thinks it knows better than Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Berkeley, and Caltech? I I mean, come on. What what can you draw from that? Except that they're scientifically ignorant at UBC. They don't know better than the world's best. Uh, do you think it will change or is is perhaps they're being hopeful that the numbers are going to go up? We're going to see the vaccination levels in B.C. get to a point where it would seem that that 80 percent are fully vaccinated or 70 percent are fully vaccinated and they're kind of banking on that. Well, if that's the strategy and maybe you're right, then that amounts to gambling with human lives. We're just going to hope this gamble pays off and people aren't going to die. That's what it boils down to. And unfortunately, that is something very Canadian. I'm I'm doing this interview today. I'm not in Canada at the moment. I'm in California, in San Diego, on vacation. The reality is this. In California, the University of California system, the biggest public university system in the world, requires vaccination. Also in California, healthcare workers require vaccination. The government in California brought that in. California has a bigger population than all of Canada. Why hasn't Canada come around to this? It is our fundamental backwardness in following science. That's the reason. We're unwilling to do the hard choices that science, in this case, the sense of saving lives through vaccination, requires of us. If we're unwilling to make hard choices, we're going to find ourselves in hard realities instead. And you kind of just touched on this, but I wanted to ask you kind of your thoughts on that. If they do go ahead, and it seems like they will, there's not going to be a vaccine mandate. Do you anticipate we are going to see those situations where in-class, in-person learning is going to have to be put on hold because of outbreaks? 
Well, how, how could you not? I mean, the outbreaks will happen. Um, you look at Canada right now, and again, the number of cases is growing. Despite a very impressive vaccination rate that we have, it's obviously not high enough to prevent cases growing. That is already happening. Add that together with the fact that young people of college and university age are very socially active, they, and good for them, they like to get together, they like to party, they like to, to have meals together, to have a few drinks, to you know, celebrate as they should. That behavior with large numbers always leads to super spreading. So you're going to end up with outbreaks. Of course you will. And you don't hear the university saying there aren't going to be outbreaks. You don't hear UBC saying there aren't going to be outbreaks. What you hear UBC saying is, well, we just don't want to do it. We don't want to take the step requiring vaccination. They're accepting that there will be outbreaks and they're accepting the risk that people will be harmed or killed. And they're accepting the risk that unfortunately another school year might be spent highly disrupted by shutdowns. It's not good enough. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Like you said, uh, you're on vacation, so I appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk about this today. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you, and be well. Well, this is a story you've been hearing all day in the news, the resignation of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. And a lot of people talking about why it took so long for Andrew Cuomo to say he was resigning. He is resigning after a number of sexual harassment allegations. However, he still maintains the accusations of sexual harassment are false, and he says this investigation is politically motivated. The situation and moment are not about the facts. It's not about the truth. It's not about thoughtful analysis. It's not about how do we make the system better. This is about politics. So we want to talk a bit more about this and about how this unfolded and what led up to the resignation. And Angela Marie McDougall is joining me now, Executive Director of the Battered Women's Support Society here in BC. Angela, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you about this. What are your thoughts on how this has unfolded? Well, I think we uh, could see that uh, that a resignation was intimate. Uh, the the um, the reality is uh, 11, 11 women have come forward who have shared experiences of sexual assault, sexualized violence uh, by him over the, the years. And one is, uh, you know, one is actually pursuing criminal charges. So uh, I think it's a, a very typical reaction response by an elected official, by a politician, than to say that it's about politics. That's not to say that there aren't a number of other factors involved in his uh, in his political life and the way that he's governed uh, New York State, including issues around COVID-19 and the deaths of seniors uh, in care homes, as well as other issues with respect to the Department of Justice. So, as we're you know as we're saying, so it, you know we all of it can be true, and we don't need to parse it out. We can focus right now on what is uh, abhorrent behavior by him that has been revealed by 11 women. 
Even in his resignation today, his comments, I mean, all along, his comments first saying that, uh, how how dare you suggest I was inappropriate? I treat everyone this way. Uh, <laughs> he, he was accused of subjecting women to unwanted kisses, to groping their breasts or buttocks and touching them inappropriately. And even today, he said, and this is a direct quote from him, he said, he never meant to cause harm while being affectionate with those around him. How do you, what do you, what goes through your mind when you hear that? Well, that's, uh, uh, you know, a, a well-worn excuse by, by, uh, by many men in, you know, in power and elected positions and, you know, in power even in, with respect to corporations. And uh, this is a well-worn uh, excuse. Uh, and this, I, you know, it's this idea that this behavior was ever, ever acceptable is, uh, of course, it was never acceptable. And what we have now is a time where, uh, as Tarana Burke has said, that there is a frequency of which people are willing to hear uh, what survivors have been saying for decades with respect to sexualized violence, sexual harassment in the workplace. It's never appropriate to touch someone and kiss someone without consent. I mean, it's just it just isn't ever was. And it certainly isn't today. Is it possible that we're sitting here or standing here in 2021, though, and there are people including Andrew Cuomo and others, perhaps, that really don't get it and don't understand that that kind of behavior is inappropriate? Right. So that's what it comes down to, is this, of course, uh, there has been a well-established practice of, of, uh, of justification of women specifically, and particularly in the workplace, and about this idea that men in power can have access to women's bodies uh, you know, at will. And, 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 and I think we've all been socialized in that in a bunch of different ways. And so it plays out in, in all kinds of ways within the workplace, and it has. And I think it's no surprise to many women, uh, many of us have had these kinds of experiences in a workplace by a boss or by a colleague, a coworker. And so what's happened now is the result of many years, but in particular Me Too, which, you know, is, again, kind of creating this, uh, the frequency uh, of which now people are willing to hear and, and those that perpetrate this kind of uh, behavior in a workplace uh, and as a function through their work, uh, accountable. I mean, it's the accountability in the day. It's the, the frequency of which people are willing to hear. It's the camaraderie of the millions of women, of survivors who have had these experiences, who are making their experiences public. Uh, mostly through social media, uh, but also in the workplace, and also the, the you know using the legal system, mostly the civil system, uh, because that tends to be uh, one of the courts, as well as the court of public opinion, uh, because the criminal court tends to not be very effective in in this, and and so we are in a major uh, cultural shift where uh, you know we uh, it was never acceptable, and it's not acceptable today, and and you will be held accountable. And even though his words seem to be chosen so carefully today, because the impression that I think people get from what he's talked about or how he's responded to this, even now, I mean, holding out not resigning, even when those calls for his resignation were growing and growing, it still seems like he he almost considers himself the victim in all of this, saying it's political (laughs) and, oh, woe is me. I don't for the betterment of everyone. I don't want to be a distraction. So I'll do the right thing and resign. Well, that's, I guess, the crisis communications tactics that he's using. Uh, I I guess his lawyers and his PR people are giving him that advice, you know, that he would be given the benefit of the doubt 
and, uh, you know, that we would kind of appreciate that maybe he's older and doesn't understand. I mean, all these kinds of ways to excuse away what is, uh, you know, uh, abhorrent behavior was never acceptable. Uh, but these are strategies, certainly. And, uh, you know, it's not really playing that well uh, on for anybody. Uh, certainly not what I've seen through, um, you know, watching the news and, and, and conversations. I mean, I think we all understand exactly what's going on and uh, exactly what's happening. And, um, you know, it, you know, I guess the, the idea of being just telling the truth and saying, I, you know, I thought I could get away with it and I didn't. Or I've been getting away with it, and today I am accountable. I think that's really, at the end of the day, what's in effect here. He did something as well that makes me so angry when men do this. He talked about his daughters and said, oh, daughters, your dad has made mistakes. Why why is it that some men seem to think, or what is your response when when men bring up their daughters or wives as though... Yeah. By having a woman in their life, that's how they've seen the light that, oh, I'm supposed to respect women. Yeah. So uh, we've seen this, of course, with, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the these um, politicians that come out and, you know, and they bring their wives to stand beside them while they, you know, just just kind of act shameful, but kind of talk about the shame, their shame. You know, women then are just props, really to help neutralize what's happened. And so that for me, that's even more of an indication of what, where he's at, because yeah, you know, to use your daughters as a prop in this instance is, uh, you know, to somehow uh, that, you know, it it is a strategy and it's, um, it's really problematic, you know, and, and it gives us another, gives me a sense of another layer of, um, of dysfunction in his behavior to roll out his daughters, to invoke his daughters in this way is uh, quite troubling. And, uh, and what are they, you know, it really puts them on a spot in a bunch of different ways. Uh, and, you know, and I guess he recognizes that, you know, that he has so much power over them in terms of being the father. Uh, you know, what option would they have? It's, it's just really bad form, both in terms of being a father and also a politician and a man. Do you think the message is getting out there at all, though, uh, for men, that if you if you make the reference saying that becoming a father has led to you uh, understanding or respecting women, you're not actually saying that you're a good person. You're you're saying that you were a bad person. Well, yeah, that's it, isn't it? The, uh, the it, you know what it. I mean, and this is where we're at right now, isn't it? This the part around the socialization and and how much. Uh, you know, we how much work we have to do in terms of shifting the culture where we're, we'll have fathers to understand that their daughters are not objects for them to roll out in these instances, and, and women in general are not to be objectified, but are full, full, fully human, and uh, you know, and equal, uh, and uh, and so we've got a lot of work to do, and and you know, and um, you know, Mr. Cuomo is uh, you know showing us exactly that the work that's still left to be done. Do you think this will help as far as women coming forward and seeing that even though it took a while, this did lead to his resignation, this did, this did lead to some change? I, I think it's every single instance that we're seeing, whether it, you know, it was with Bill Cosby, whether it was, uh, uh, you know, with um, Harvey Weinstein, whether it is with now with Prince Andrew, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, with uh, R. Kelly uh, and, you know, and, and that's probably the only one that's the, you know, it has not received any measure of justice where justice remains elusive is uh, uh, the former president, Donald Trump. 
Uh, yeah, there's a whole other conversation right there. Uh, Angela, let's leave it there for today. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this again, but appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. An absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jill. All the best. Thanks for being with us. Well, earlier today, a news conference was held and we learned a little bit more about what is going to be an Indigenous-led initiative on behalf of the Squamish, Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. This is going to be an investigation into the former St. Paul's Indian Residential School site on the North Shore. And joining me to talk a little bit more about what this is going to look like is Hosilam, Councillor for the Squamish Nation. Thank you so much for for taking the time with us today. Thank you. Um, I was listening to and watching the news conference this morning, and I know you talked about how this is going to be very traumatic for a lot of people, but it's an important thing that needs to be done, this investigation that's going to be in three stages. Can you talk a little bit about where things are at right now and what's going to be happening? For the last number of weeks, since the discovery of the unmarked graves at the Kamloops Indian Residential School, we've had calls from our survivors in our community asking if we would be doing a similar uh, investigation at the former St. Paul's Indian Residential School site in North Vancouver. We've also um, been able to collect some stories from some of our survivors and some archival information uh, to give us an indication that uh, how important it would be to both confirm the oral history and the experiences of our survivors. And so we've been collecting information preliminarily um, to develop a work plan on what an investigation would look like, what the full scope would look like, how we would proceed to do it in a very culturally sensitive and emotionally sensitive way. And what have you come up with then as far as how to move forward with that? We plan to do two complementary phases of work that will eventually lead to a third phase. The, The first two phases that will work in tandem is to invite any of the survivors who attended the school to come forward and share any history experiences that they feel would help inform where we might do a field investigation to identify uh, potential grave sites of children who attended the school and might not have returned home. The second piece is to collect all archival information that is available and out there uh, to be able to understand the full scope of, of what had happened in the school and then use those two pieces of information to then do a field investigation of the site, uh, possibly with ground-penetrating radar similar to what we've seen in other residential schools. I know this question was asked of you during the news conference as well, having to do with records and access to records. And how is that process going as far as knowing that there are records out there, perhaps that you haven't seen or that uh, the nations haven't seen and need to see as part of this? It, there, ha- There is a lot of records about the school and things like um, student lists, attendance, Uh, school reports, reports by different officials who had worked with the school. These schools were run by the Catholic Church, but they were also supported and mandated by the federal government. So there's a number of record pieces all over the the country. Um, We've had challenges to date so far accessing the full breadth of the information that's available. We've mostly been receiving it piecemeal from Indigenous Services Canada and, and from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so We're hoping that um, in the coming weeks uh, or months, um, we'll see a fulsome disclosure and that we can receive all the information so that we can use that to inform what further questions we might need to ask of our survivors 
but also so that we can document what had actually happened at the St. Paul's Residential School to be able to honour the survivors and the students who had attended. Uh, I know during the conference as well, we heard from, well, there were several speakers. One of those speakers, uh, Chief uh, Jen Thomas, I wanted to play, if I have it here, yes, I wanted just to play this little bit of what she said, because I think this really, for people that maybe don't know much about the history or or think that it's such ancient history, uh, she clarified that for people. You know, when we talk about the residential schools, some may think it goes way back in our history, but it doesn't. It goes back to one generation in my family. My dad went to St. Paul's Indian Residential School. You know, I'm, I'm grateful he survived. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. You know, to think of something like that, that wasn't too long ago. That was 50 years ago, you know. Last night was uh, a healing journey, a start of our healing journey for our survivors with the work that was done by the Squamish Nation. What are your thoughts on that, the, the fact that this is happening now and that it, that it seems like it took that discovery in Kamloops to, to get this happening, to make sure that, that work was being done to, to find these answers? The discovery of Kamloops, I think, definitely shed the light, um, the tragedy of what happened in the residential schools. And we've seen at a number of other schools across the country that similar discoveries are coming to light. But we also know that when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission issued their report, they had an entire chapter dedicated to the missing children who did not return home. So we've known for quite some time, both through the TRC and then also through the testimony that was given and to the records that we had, that there were a number of deaths within the residential school and that a number of children didn't make it home. Um, I think what Chief Jen has highlighted is is true, that a lot of people don't understand how recent this was. Uh, for myself, I, 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 was, I was born in, in the 19, late 1980s, and my mother went to residential school. My grandparents went to residential school. My great-grandparents went to residential school. And my great-great-grandparents went to residential school. So... There is an intergenerational element to how long that this went on, but there's also the fact that this is very recent for many of our families. I understand as well, this particular school site, the St. Paul's Indian Residential School, the the site of that school is now currently, it is still a school, but it is also owned by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Vancouver. Are you able to work with the, the diocese or do you have a working relationship with them as far as moving forward with this investigation? We've been very grateful uh, for the participation and support and involvement of the Vancouver Catholic Archdiocese. They've been very supportive of our requests and willing partners to work together on this. They recognize uh, the importance of this work and the value of bringing healing to our survivors uh, by supporting this work. And we were very honoured to to be joined at our press conference today by a representative of the Catholic Archdiocese who shared some very meaningful words that our survivors heard around uh, the, the apology for their role in the harm that was caused to the residential schools, but also how important it is for them to participate and their, their level of support for the investigation. And that's got to help, doesn't it? Or, or does it make it, I don't want to say easier, there's nothing about this that seems easy, but does that help as far as getting that support, getting that apology while this is happening? 
I think it's I think it's uh, really important for our survivors and our community to feel that we're all working together on this, that we are um, putting aside um, any differences or any uh, and, and, and finding a way to work together, because when we work together, we can show our people and the world that we can work together to heal from the harm that was caused and that we want to move forward together. Um, but in order to move forward together, we have to work together. And so I think it's a, it's it's an honor to work with the Catholic Archdiocese on this. I think they are honored as well to work with us and to be invited to be a part of this. Um, but I also think for our survivors, it's important that they see that we are working together on this and that we are collaborating. Why do you think there was such a, a time gap or a time lapse that, like you said, in the Truth and Reconciliation Report, there is that entire chapter that talks about the missing children. It talks about children who died, who never came home. Why do you think there was such a, a, a time between the report coming out, the knowledge of that, and, and now what we're seeing as far as finding those answers? One of the truths that I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, highlighted for the country was the fact that residential schools even existed. Um For many Canadians, that was possibly the first time in their lives that they even knew that there were these schools that were operating or the full breadth of the types of horrors that had happened within the schools. I mean, the level of physical and sexual abuse, the levels of discrimination and the psychological damage that had happened to children, you know, as young as four years old over over a decade of, of schooling, a lot of that was coming to light for the very first time for many Canadians. And over the last decade, we've spent many years trying to implement the TRC's calls to action, which involves uh, both the media and our public institutions raising awareness about residential schools. So I think there was a lot that came to light when that first report was, was issued. And then I think that with the recent discovery at Kamloops, where we have 215 children um, it's hard sometimes for us as, as human beings to quant- like to understand, you know, large enough uh, statistics. So if we say that there was 4,000 or 10,000 or whatever number it is of, of missing children or, or children who, who died in the schools, it, it's hard for a lot of us to understand what that really looks like. But when you start putting it into numbers like 215, it starts to become, and I think it hits people differently and it hits them emotionally in a way that they can actually understand. And then I think that that has had a snowball effect where now more and more schools are empowered, both through uh, support from financial partners, um, from from other levels of government, and from the capacity that we have in our nations to do further investigations. So I think that it's now coming to light again uh, because there is a greater awareness of the overall uh activities that had happened in the residential schools. And we know the schools were run in many instances by the Catholic Church. They were run by governments. How important is it or is it important that somebody is held accountable or that somebody or some group is punished for what happened? I definitely think that there is a feeling among survivors that they and and, and intergenerational survivors on a need for accountability. Um, there's a reality that when you uncover some of these unmarked graves at these sites, that they actually, they're not treated as an archaeological find in the way that if we were doing an archaeological survey for some sort of housing development or something, if we find uh, unmarked graves, they actually become a criminal investigation and, and the RCMP have to become involved. 
And that adds a, a seriousness to the fact that there was a lot of abuse, harm done in these schools. Um, they weren't that long ago. And I do think that there is a feeling by many survivors around the desire for accountability. But that being said, I do think that the other part of accountability is not so much just um, holding individuals accountable, but also the broader system that allowed for that system to last for so long and for it to cause so much harm and to really think through how do we ensure that these types of atrocities don't happen again, Um, that reconciliation needs to be not having to say sorry a second time. All right. Let's leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about what was discussed and what was announced earlier and the next steps going forward. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up this half hour, we will have that chance for you to win a four-pack of gate and ride passes to the annual PE Fair. Two listeners are going to engage in the news quiz today. So that is coming up. First, though, we want to talk a little bit more about something we discussed on the show yesterday, and that was the border between Canada and the United States reopening for American citizens and permanent residents who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and who could show a negative COVID-19 test. David Edward Oipoon is the founder of the group Faces of Advocacy and is joining us now to talk about people who have been separated because of that border closure. Thank you so much for being with us. (laughs) Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. How big of a deal is this for people who haven't been able to see each other for 16 or plus months? There's a significant amount of cautious elation at the changes on August the 9th. Um, At the moment, it looks like things uh, should be working well because the system is in place where a fully vaccinated American citizen or permanent resident can come into Canada without any sort of forms. Previously, uh, the face of advocacy had to advocate for forms for extended family to come into the country. And so far, it looks like it's been helpful for a lot of people. The challenge, interestingly, has been more nuanced because uh, families who are border families aren't actually able to do the opposite direction where Canadians can drive into the U.S., In addition to that, uh, some people um, still require the family exemption papers to be filled. And when they come into Canada to be with their families, they're beholden to a 15-day minimum stay, despite the fact that they are fully vaccinated. Can you talk a little bit about some of the people that you've been working with or the stories that you can share about people Mm. who have been separated and just how difficult it's been? Mm. So we typically talk about three different case scenarios. Number one is we had a young woman who was diagnosed with cancer and her UK fiancé wasn't able to come and take care of her during a very difficult time during the pandemic. Another example is a Canadian mother whose American children weren't allowed to enter into Canada to say goodbye. She passed away. And then comes the interesting cases where you have a breastfeeding American mother not allowed to actually come in and be with her partner in Canada because of the restrictions. These are just examples uh, where even with every step that the Faces of Advocacy fought for to alleviate that burden, there are things like the inability to take two weeks off of work to come in to meet the two-week mandatory minimum, Uh, the fact that the border officers were uh, inconsistently applying our exemptions. And so when we approach August 9th for the U.S. and September the 7th, we hope that there is consistency and that 
people coming into the country will have an easier time than Canadian families did over the pandemic. Uh, you mentioned that, the consistency, and that's where I was a bit confused about this and looking at some of these stories, uh, because I have family both in Canada and the United States, and I've had family in Connecticut uh, that uh, that is, they're both, uh, he's Canadian, she's American, but they've been going, driving back and forth across the border as part of family reunification with no problem throughout this temp- pandemic. Well, without problem without the pandemic may not necessarily been the true picture at the start. Actually, even if you were married, you weren't allowed to cross into Canada. Then, uh, after the face of advocates existed, uh, immediate family were allowed in, so that would be married or common law. However, long-term partners like fiancés were not possible, nor were adult children. So the example of the dying Canadian mother. That paperwork was significantly delayed and only existed in October. So that meant uh, about uh, six months uh, since the beginning of the pandemic before that existed. Following that came the hotel quarantine where even a fully vaccinated person had to go to the hotel quarantine. And then even once they changed that, there was inconsistency when it came to the border officer actually applying that to the family. To all of your listeners, this is very confusing. and It was difficult for families. But uh, let's take a look at it simply as of today. When it comes to inconsistency, a fully vaccinated extended family member from any other country than the U.S., is still beholden to 15-day minimum stay, whereas an American tourist coming to see the uh, beautiful Rocky Mountains will actually have more mobility than a family member of a Canadian. And did you get the sense or did you hear from people that they were in for, I mean, how would they even enforce the 15-day minimum stay, especially if you were driving across the border? They wouldn't know if you turned around and went home in a week or you didn't. Well, they would know when you tried to come back in. (laughs) And we advise all of our members to follow the rules because if in the long term you want a partner to come in and uh, sponsor them as as your uh, partner or to come in, uh, these types of things, we don't want to have a black mark. So it's true. They couldn't prevent someone from leaving Canada uh, within 15 days, but they could stop them from coming back in ever again. And we've seen some reports that uh, that this could happen. Are you confident then or looking forward to when even more restrictions are eased and it opens up more to international travelers who are fully vaccinated and can provide that negative test? The government has long stated that they will follow the science. And on the topic of consistency and accountability, that simply hasn't been the case. For example, the government's own uh, scientific panel has said that hotel quarantines and a, pre- and a pre-arrival test, so the test out overseas to come into Canada, were actually not necessary for fully vaccinated individuals. But here we are after August 9th, where a fully vaccinated individual um, may, may not have to do a hotel quarantine, but it's still doing a pre-departure test. These tests are about 200 American dollars for a lot of people, and that is cost prohibitive for a lot of families to come together. So if the question is, am I optimistic, am I looking forward to changes? Yes. Because anything to help families come together in a compassionate, safe, science-backed way is absolutely what we need. What else would you like to see then as far as safely removing restrictions or easing restrictions so that families are able to see each other and to reunite? So... Anyone coming into Canada right now, including the Americans, will soon be having a lot more experiences with both Immigration Canada and the Canadian Border Services Agency. The challenge is there's no actual citizen advocacy or an ombudsman for dealing with issues and that inconsistency. So anyone on border town will tell you coming into Canada really depends on the mood of the agent that day. And this is something we saw time and time again. Moving to a post-COVID world, 
a lot of people will be experiencing these border issues for the first time. And what we really need is a proper level of accountability, a citizen's advocate to actually ensure that people are being treated fairly. And that way we can have safe immigration into Canada that is also fair because we weren't seeing that for the families over the past year. And what about the use of the ArriveCan app? Are there any issues that you see with that? The ArriveCan app uh, itself didn't even acknowledge family reunification during the early days. So we won our exemption, but the ArriveCan app didn't work. Uh, From my understanding, it's working a little bit better, but we do have moments where people may not have internet access um, and uh, they won't have smartphones. And so if we're talking about having your 80-year-old grandmother come in to visit, they'll need some help putting that together. So hopefully the paper-based versions will be helpful as well. The ArriveCan app um, is a useful tool, but it has to be regularly updated and regularly made clear for a lot of people because if you have a high barrier to access, like needing to use a smartphone or needing to uh, understand uh, more nuanced pieces of paper, uh, you can end up having a lot of difficulty for people approaching the border. I wondered about that too, especially the fact that you need to have the most up-to-date version of the app, that if somebody Mm -hmm. arrives at the border and they simply haven't updated it, does that mean they they can't go forward? The the agent at the border is just going to say, no, you have to go fix this or deal with this before you can even attempt to get into the country? Uh, Recently, BC reported that a person who was a family member of the victim of the crane accident were actually... uh, mistreated at the border uh, because the app didn't work. So provided there's a common sense paper backup method, um, we can accept some mistakes with the ArriveCan app. But if there isn't, if there's no accountability and it looks like, oh, your app isn't working, get out of Canada. This is huge harm for families who are just wanting to be together in one of the most difficult situations in the world, unprecedented in our lifetimes. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot, I think. And, and for people too, I think if you haven't tried to cross the border or had a family member who you've been separated from or a family member try to do this, do you get the impression that people don't really grasp or understand just how complicated and how different it can be, again, depending on which border agent you might happen to get on any given day? Some of your listeners might be wondering, you know, oh, I, I stay away from my friends for the past six, uh, six months. What's the difference? And I want you to picture if you had a worldwide pandemic, who would you want beside you? And for most people, it's your family. So that's step number one. Number two is there is a false dichotomy that people believe that you either stay apart and everyone lives or you come together and everyone dies. And that's simply not true. If it was true, then why are the NHL playing in Canada? And then number three, if we're looking at a common sense safety plan right now, the government will be now integrating United States people. For example, when we won our exemptions, this was the first time that the U.S. had to, U.S. citizens had to actually be tracked by Immigration Canada. This will affect all of us at one point when you leave the country. So if you're listening to us, I ask you to please understand that the groundwork that families laid here will have long-standing effects on future immigration in the post-COVID world, and we need to get it right, we need to get it fair, and it needs to be done compassionately. All right, we will leave it there for today. David, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you.